God is good. And all the time. Good to see you all here today. And I want to say we had a wonderful One Things picnic last week. And I want to thank all of you who attended it and uh, all of you who made it happen. There was a, a surplus of food. And there was a surplus of fun. And there was a surplus of fellowship. And uh, there was just a surplus. It was awesome. Uh, I didn't make it to the Sunday morning service because I was ministering elsewhere. Actually, last weekend I did a men's retreat uh, up in Watsonville. And, uh, you know, it was, it was wonderful. It was with New Life Church in Castor Valley, Pastor Doobie on Short Ridge. And they were extremely gracious. And uh, we were there Thursday night, Friday morning, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. I preached. No, no, no. Starting Friday night. Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday, Saturday night. So anyway, I preached five services and uh, had a wonderful... So I went to the retreat. I mean, I, right after the Sunday morning service at the retreat center, I jetted down here for the picnic and got to the picnic and everybody was there. We had an awesome time and, and uh, then went from there to preach the last service. And so uh, it was a busy weekend, but it was a lot of fun. And so uh, for those of you who made the picnic, great. And those of, how many of you are connecting with the small groups and, and running with this one things thing? Raise your hand. If you're connect, you've been to a small group meeting. All right. Okay, so that means there's a lot more of you that need to jump on board, and I want to invite you to do so. We have sign-up sheets on the outside of the sanctuary out here and all of the small group times and places they meet. We are in the midst of a process that we call One Things. We launched it on uh, the first Sunday in June, which was last Sunday, and that's why we had the One Things picnic to commemorate it. I'm going to explain it to you right now, but if you have any more questions about it, you can go to our website. Our web address is livinghopecc.us. Livinghopecc.us. Can we put that on the screen, please? Livinghopecc.us. And on that website, you'll see a banner that says One Things. If you click that, we have a whole section on the website to explain to you what One Things is and how you can get involved. And all of the small groups are listed there, and you actually can actually click and and join a small group. You can sign up for a small group right there on the website. And so basically what One Things is, is a process by which we seek to grow intentionally in eight different areas of our lives. The first area is our spirituality. You've got to grow in your spiritual life. Second area is our physicality. You grow in your physical life, your physical well-being. Third, family. Fourth, finances. Fifth, fellowship or friendship. Sixth, service. Seventh, uh, vocation. And then eighth is mission. And so we're going to grow in each of these eight areas. And it's called one things because in each of these eight areas, we're simply going to choose one thing. The, the Spirit of God is simply going to put his finger on one thing. And we're going to take that and focus on growing in that one particular area in each of these eight primary areas of our lives. Now today is part two of our series on spirituality. We're going to spend the months of June, July, and August on spirituality, the first section. And each of these sections is going to be three months. It's going to take us two years to go through this whole process. But at the end of two years, you'll be able to look back and say, I've grown in these eight major areas of my life. The month of June, we're focusing on personal spirituality. We're talking about what it means to develop a deep, personal, one-on-one relationship with God. Because how many know that we're not going to stand before God as a group? On Judgment Day, he's not going to say, all the members of Living Hope come forward and gather us all in. No, no, no. One at a time. When you stand before God, and nobody there with you. You can't stand before God and say, my mama prayed. My grandmother used to pray for me every night. I remember the day my daddy laid me under the chair and laid his hands on me and prayed. And God's going to say, no, it, uh, the question is, do I know you? 
Do you have a relationship with me? And all of us are responsible for our personal walk with God. At the end of the day, we can't blame anybody else for where we are in our relationship with God. And so we're going to focus on personal spirituality in the month of June. In the month of July, we're going to focus on corporate spirituality. Because at the end of the day, why not just pray in your prayer closet and not go to church? We're going to talk about why it's important for us to come together and be a part of the house of God and the family of God. The Bible calls that discipleship. And then in the third month, in the month of August, we're going to talk about applied spirituality. And that's when your walk with Christ bursts the boundaries of your person and begins to minister to others. It's also called ministry. Okay? So we're going somewhere. Now, last Sunday, my wife opened up this series with a powerful word on creating space for God. How many were here last Sunday and you got blessed by that? Amen. What a powerful time. Creating space for God. She talked about Mary and Martha and sitting at the feet of Jesus and, and not being so busy with other things that we don't take time to cultivate that time to carve out that space for God. So last week we talked about making space for God, creating space for God in our lives. Today we're going to talk about filling that space for God with God. Filling that space with God. How many know that there's a difference between creating space for God and filling that space with God? Have you ever had a prayer meeting that God didn't show up to? Have you ever experienced that? I mean, where you went into the secret place. You go in, Sometimes I feel like I go into the secret place of the Most High, and it's so secret that even God doesn't know where it is. Like, God, uh, GPS me. I'm waiting for you. I'm here. Come on, God. I got an app that will help you to find your way here. You need a smartphone. Creating space for God is the first step. And if you're not intentional about creating space for God, you have no reasonable expectation of meeting with Him, of growing in Him, of developing in Him. If you're just waiting for Him to fall in your lap, like just to interrupt you, you know, while you're on your way to work, it's not going to happen. But if you are intentional about creating space for God then you can reasonably expect that if you create space for God and you wait there for Him, He'll meet you there. And He'll change your life. Now we're going to talk about David today. David was a man who sought to make space for God, not only in his own life, but for the whole community of Israel. Now, there was this thing in Israel called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box that was constructed out of acacia wood overlaid with gold. A solid gold lid was made and put on the top of it. And God instructed them to craft these angels called cherubim and put them on the lid of the box. And they were to put the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which was the innermost part of the tabernacle that Moses built. Literally, God told Moses, I want you to build this meeting place for me in the desert, this tent. And I want you to put it in the center of the community. And so Moses built this tent. Remember, they're in the desert. They're there for 40 years. But at the center of their community, there was this big tent with three rooms. The first room was called the outer court. The second room was called the inner court. And the third room was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where that gold box called the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. It was not a God that they worshipped. It was not an idol. But it was the place where God's presence dwelt. God said that I would, He would dwell in the Ark of the Covenant and that the people of Israel could come before Him there. But there was a veil between the inner court and the Holy of Holies. And only one man once a year went under that veil and into the Holy of Holies to meet with God and to encounter God there in the Ark of the Covenant. And he went in with blood, which symbolized the sacrifice or worship. And he went in with incense, which symbolized the prayer. 
And in that place, that is where the high priest met with God on behalf of the people and then came out and shared with the people what God had said and what God was doing on behalf of the people. Now, Moses put the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the, in the, the, the tabernacle in the center of the community and all of the tents of Israel surrounded, kind of in concentric circles, surrounded that, that tabernacle and surrounded the Ark of the Covenant and everybody's tent was facing inward. Facing the Ark of the Covenant, they would come out of the door of their tent and they saw the Ark of the Covenant. They saw the tabernacle of Moses and Moses would go in and meet with God. But here was the thing. The glory of the Lord dwelt over the tabernacle. So literally, Israel was physically situated facing the glory of God. And the picture that God was, was painting for Israel was that your entire life is designed to revolve around my presence. God's presence, His glory, His power is supposed to occupy the place that is at the center of our lives. Now Moses died, Joshua took Israel into the promised land and they began to, to enter into the time of conquest and they began to take the land. And after they became situated in the land, Joshua died, the time of judges happened. And the Ark of the Covenant was put in this city called Shiloh. It was kind of at the outskirts. It was still there, but it was at the outskirts. A lot of believers live their lives that way. God is still there, but He's in the outskirts. My life happens over here, and I still got God, and He's a part of my life, but He's on the outskirts. He's no longer the center. And whenever God leaves the place of the center of your life, now all kinds of trouble can happen. And Israel got into all kinds of trouble during the time of the judges simply because they allowed God to be moved to the outskirts outskirts of their lives instead of at the center of their lives. Now we've heard of this guy named Samuel who was the greatest of the judges. And when Samuel was a little boy, he was dedicated to the Lord by his mother, Hannah. And he grew up from a young age, probably about two or three years old. He grew up in Shiloh with Eli, the high priest. And Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was. And Samuel grew up near the presence of the Lord. That is, he slept right outside of the Holy of Holies. He was, he, he was so near to God from a young age that he was able to hear God audibly call his name, Samuel, Samuel. And God spoke to him from a young age. Now, Eli the high priest had two sons, and his two sons were wicked before the Lord, and Eli did not restrain them. And so, when it came time for the Philistines to attack Israel, and it was time to go to war, the Israelites believed if we just get the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and take it out with us to the battlefield, God will give us victory against our enemies. They thought that they could live any way they wanted to live, Monday through Saturday, but if they just come to church on Sunday wearing a suit and saying the right words, God was going to break through on their behalf. They thought they could go to the club on Saturday night and drop it like it's hot and get their drink on. But if they just came to church on Sunday and said the right combination of prayers, God was going to break through on their behalf. They didn't think that it mattered how they lived during the week as long as they said the right, um, uh, the right combination of words when it was time to call out to God on worship day. But how many know that it don't work that way? And so God literally abandoned them. They went out onto the battlefield and it says that when the Ark of the Covenant entered into the camp of Israel, that the Israelites lifted up a shout and it says the shout was so great that it made the earth shake. I want to hear that kind of a shout at church. But let me tell you something. Just because just you hear a shout that way doesn't mean that God is in it. 
they knew how to shout and how to dance before the Lord and God was not in the shout and God was not in the dance. They probably had a Hammond B3 organ behind them, but God was not in the Hammond B3 organ. They had a drum set going, but God was not in the drum set. They had a bass guitar thumping, but God was not in the bass guitar. God wasn't in the sound system. God wasn't in the shout and the Philistines got scared when they heard the shout. But they went out on the battlefield and attacked the people of Israel and beat Israel up one side of the battlefield and down the other side. How many know that the people of God are getting the, 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 the stuff beat out of them by the devil on a daily basis simply because they think they can walk in all kinds of sin and wickedness before God, but yet if I simply call on Him, He'll come to my rescue and He'll answer me. Let me tell you something, God will come to your rescue and God will answer you, but He says, go and sin no more. We have to learn that what God wants is for us to get right and rend our heart, not just our garment. Come on, somebody. Uh, Help me, Jesus. Now, I'm going to need some water before this is all done. Uh, And so, uh, um, now, The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Not not only did they defeat Israel, but they captured the Ark of the Covenant. They thought they had kidnapped Israel's God. Now, how many know if you're really a God, you can't be kidnapped? I mean, if somebody kidnaps your God and you need to help your God, say, we need to send out a search party for God. God is in trouble. We got to help him. We got to help them. Israel thought, our God, the Philistines thought, we have captured the God of Israel. And they took Israel's God and put him in the temple with their God. Now, their God's name was Dagon. And they put Israel's God, they thought, next to Dagon, their God, and they went to sleep thinking, we have conquered. They woke up the next morning and Dagon was laying on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. God literally took their God and said, you're going to bow down. You're going to worship You're about to recognize. They woke up in the morning. They said, this can't be. They picked up Dagon. They set him back in his place. And they went to sleep. They woke up the next morning. God said, you didn't get it. Now I'm going to teach you a lesson. And you're not going to forget this one. Dagon's head and hands were cut off. And Dagon was bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. And then God started striking the city. People were getting boils and sores. And and then God started striking them with hemorrhoids and stuff. God has a sense of humor. Can you imagine the angels going, God, what kind of judgment are you prescribing for this people? And God says, hmm, hemorrhoids. It was before the invention of tux. There was no relief. They said, get this God out of here. We don't want Israel's God here. And they sent him to another city. And and that city opened up the gates and he came in and God did the same thing to them. They said, send him to another city. And, And when they saw him coming, they said, you're not bringing him in here to kill us like he's done you. Send him away. And the leaders of Philistia got together and said, what are we going to do? They said, send him back to Israel. They said, we don't want to touch the thing. How are we going to get it back to Israel? They said, put it on a new cart and hitch some oxen to it and see what happens. They put it on a cart hitched some oxen to it, and those oxen walked right back to Israel. Right back to Israel. How many know that God knows how to return to his people, even if his people don't know how to return to him? How many know that God, he knows how to come back if you don't know how to come back? He knows when you've gone so far that you don't know your way back. You ever feel like you're so far from the Lord that you say, God, even if I prayed for 24 hours, I couldn't find my way back to you. God says, that's okay. I know how to come back to you. I know how to come back to you. I don't care what's happened in your life. God knows how to come back to you. Come on, somebody. But there was a problem. 
And the problem was that the Ark of the Covenant came to a city called Beth Shemesh. And in Beth Shemesh, there was a group of men that were out harvesting their grain. So they're out there harvesting their grain. And all of a sudden, here comes God. All of a sudden, here comes some oxen pulling in the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. The presence of God comes to this city called Beth Shemesh. And these men of Beth Shemesh were curious. How many know that curiosity kills the cat? They decided they wanted to open it up and look inside. Now, they had not seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because anybody who has seen Raiders of the Lost Ark knows that you don't open the Ark of the Covenant if you find it. God had expressly commanded Israel, don't even touch it. It's holy. It represents the presence of God and the presence of God is holy and you don't mess with God. Listen, he is loving. He is faithful. He is kind. He is good. He redeems. He restores. He heals. He delivers. He provides. He breaks through on our behalf. He makes a way out of no way. He opens doors where there is no door. He turns the valley of trouble into a door of hope. But let me tell you something. He is not to be messed with. He is not to be fooled with. If you are going to approach him, you got to approach him the way he says to approach him. Because do not mistake his kindness for weakness. It is a mistake that you will not soon forget. So the men of Beth Shemesh, they threw off the lid. Hey, there's the tablets of the Ten Commandments. There's Aaron's rod that budded. There's a jar of manna from the wilderness, and it's still good. Look at this. And all of a sudden, you saw the scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know if it happened like that, but God killed 70 of them. You know, God kills people. I told my Spanish friends, my Spanish-speaking friends, I'm going to write a book one day called Dios de la Cuete. It means God of the gun. A gangster God. And it's going to be about all the people in the Bible that God killed. God is a gangster. God will shank you if he needs to. And so the people of Bet Shemesh, they said, you know what? We don't, we don't want to fool with this thing anymore. They put the lid back on it. They were like, this thing is dangerous. God is dangerous and we don't want anything to do with him anymore. So they sent the Ark of the Covenant to, this, to the home of this man named Abinadab. Abinadab. He was a Levite priest. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to watch over the Ark of God. And they intended to come back and get it later. But we just need some time to heal from this stuff that's happened to us. Does that sound familiar? I'm going to get my life with God together later. One day. One day I'm going to get my life. One day I'm going to pursue a personal deep relationship with him. But I got to heal from some stuff because I'm mad at him for what he allowed to happen in my life. And I'm going to, you know, they intended that later, later I'll come back. 
Later we'll come back and get it and we'll bring it back and we'll figure out how, what to do with God. Later we'll figure out how to walk with Him. Later we'll figure out how to seek His face, but I can't do it right now because I'm hurting. I hear people say, I can't worship today. Why? Because I'm hurting. I can't pray today. Why? Because I'm hurting. You ever had a day when you couldn't pray because you were hurting? Let me tell you something. That's not the right response. If you're hurting, you go to God with your hurt. If you're, if you're in pain, you go to God with your pain. You don't run away from Him because you're hurting. But the people of Beth Shemesh sent it to Abinadab's house and said, we'll send it there. Samuel was a little boy. 20 years went by. And now Samuel's a grown man. He's judging Israel. Did they go to Abinadab's house? No, the ark is still there. They established King Saul as king of Israel. Did they go to Abinadab's house and get the ark? No, the ark is still there. Saul reigns over Israel for 40 years. Did they go to Abinadab's house and get the ark? No. The ark is still there. You wonder why Saul got into all that trouble? Because the ark is way over there. I'm trying to lead, but the ark is over there. Somebody else is manning the ark of God on my behalf. Somebody else is praying, and I'm not praying. Somebody else is seeking God's face for me, and I'm not seeking God's face. Somebody else, it's always about somebody else pulling the weight for me. Saul dies. David is crowned king of Israel. And the first thing David sees is this city up on a hill called Jerusalem. And 1 Chronicles chapter 16 tells us about this, as well as 2 Samuel chapter 6. David sees this city up on a hill called Jerusalem, and he decides, I'm going to take that city, I'm going to make it my city. And he takes that city, and he makes it his city. And Hiram, or Hiram, king of Tyre, sent skilled laborers with the cedars of Lebanon, and they built David a palatial mansion on the hill in Jerusalem. And David looked around and his court was set in Jerusalem and his palace was in Jerusalem and his government and rule was in Jerusalem and his, his, his men, his counselors was in Jerusalem and his generals were in Jerusalem and, and life and the center of Israel was now Jerusalem. But what was missing from Jerusalem was the presence of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was still over at Abinadab's house. David had never seen it. He had only heard stories. He had heard stories about how the people of Israel under Joshua carried the Ark of the Covenant around Jericho for seven days. And then they gave a shout and the walls came tumbling down. He had heard about what God had done for Israel. How God dwelt between the cherubim. He had heard about moves of God, but he had never seen it. But his heart longed to see it. And I'm telling you that there's a generation arising that's heard about the revivals of the past. See, I grew up in that generation and I'm in that generation today. I heard about what God did at Azusa Street, but I didn't see it. I heard about what he did at the charismatic renewal, but I didn't see it. I've heard about the prophets of Sabinus, but I didn't see it. I've heard about the great awakenings, but I didn't see it. And there's a hunger in my heart that says, Lord, I haven't seen it, but I want to see it. Lord, I'm tired of hearing about it. I want to see it. I'm tired of hearing about what you did. I want to see what you're going to do. And David said, listen, I think it's time we visited this man, Abinadab. I think it's time. Why? Because God never intended that there would be one holy man among an entire nation. He wants a holy nation. God never intended to have a holy pastor. He wants a holy people. He doesn't want a holy leadership. He wants a holy church. He's not coming for a, a pastor that's without spot or blemish. He's coming for a church that's without spot or blemish or any such thing. Come on, somebody. So David gathers 30,000 men. And they go down to Abinadab's house. They say, Abinadab, we're here for that box in there. Abinadab says, do you know how to use it? He says, never mind that. We'll figure it out. We'll learn. 
Did you read the manual? We don't need the manual. We'll figure it out. See, I'm a man. I don't read the instructions. I can put that thing together. I've been to Ikea. It's all the same. You know how much Ikea furniture I've messed up? Because I didn't read the directions. And all of a sudden, the legs are backwards, and the thing is facing upside down, and it's screwed in all wrong, and the seat, you know. I mean, it's, it's bad. And you know how, you know, it's hard to screw that stuff in. And when you did it wrong and then you got to unscrew all of it, it's messed up. Abinadab says, David, I really think you should read the directions. There's this book called um, The Bible. <laughs> David says, ah, forget it. We'll figure it out. Go in there and get that box. Well, what do we do with it? How are we going to transport it up to Jerusalem? Uh, make a cart. Isn't that how it got here? Make a cart. So they make a cart. Put some oxen on it. They hit some oxen. All right, now put that box right there on that cart. They put it. All right, let's go. And so they st- the, the oxen start pulling the cart. They're heading towards Jerusalem. And Abinadab says, okay. And David's singing and dancing. He's got flute players. He's got a whole worship team. Boom, doom, 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 doom. All around, all around. They're singing it. They're dancing. They got the step right. Most of us didn't get the step right today. (laughs) And they get to the threshing floor. This dude named Nashon. He was from East Oakland. (laughs) I think I knew him. They were like, Nashon? (laughs) That was his name, Nashon. (laughs) There's a lot of Bible names that you wouldn't think are Bible names. I knew him. He lived over on East 12th Street. And they got to the threshing floor of Nashon. And it says that the oxen stumbled. And when the oxen stumbled, the Ark of the Covenant nearly toppled and fell off of the cart. And this priest named Uzzah stretched out his hand to steady the Ark. And the moment he touched it, God struck him dead. How many know if we're in here worshiping and singing and dancing and God strikes somebody dead, the singing is over. We just move straight to the offering at that point. <laughs> it's terrible what happened, but we still need your money. <laughs> so while the police are coming, <laughs> ushers <laughs> pass the plate. I'm just kidding. You know, I'm just playing. We would take the offering after the police came. but <laughs> Oh, Lord, forgive me. The scripture said David was angry. This is in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 8. And David became angry because the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he named the place Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. It's interesting that a chapter earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the scripture says that when the Philistines heard that David had been crowned king of Israel, they came out against him in full force, and David went down into the stronghold. And David prayed and said, Lord, shall I go up against them? Will you give them into my hand? And God said, yes, go up against them. I've given you into your hand. And David went out against them and defeated them. And the scripture says that the Lord broke out 
against the Philistines on that day. And David named that place Baal Perazim. Hear that, Perez? Same word here. Lord of the breakthrough. Why? Because, because he said, as water breaks out, so the Lord has broken out against my enemies. He said, Baal Perazim, Lord of the breakthrough. In the next chapter, God breaks out against one of David's own. And David names the place Perez Uzzah, outbreak against Uzzah. David saw that one day God can break, God can break out on your behalf, and the next day he can break out against you if you don't know how to act. David was angry with God on that day. You ever been mad at God? Keep it real. It said David was angry because the Lord broke out against Uzzah. David had some feelings against the Lord he had to deal with. Verse 9, David's emotion changes. David was afraid of the Lord that day. First, he was mad at God. But within one verse, he shifted from being mad at God to being afraid of God. I'm trying to draw a parallel here for you. Because God breaks out in Beth Shemesh when the men of Israel open up the ark and they send it to the home of Abinadab for 60 years. It took them 60 years to get over that stuff. You know, sometimes I see people come to the Lord in their 70s, 80s, and 90 years, 90s. And a lot of times they'll say, I used to walk with the Lord when I was 13. But I was angry with him because of this. And it took me 60 years to get over it. Now David has this thing that happens between him and God. Something happens in his life. And he thinks it's God's fault. God is mean. God is unjust. And he's mad at God. And then the next verse, he's afraid of God. And look at what he says. David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come with me? He said, I can't do it. I tried it and it didn't work. I tried this Christian thing. I went to church. I sang the songs. I said my prayers. But stuff still kept falling apart in my life. David said, it's not for me. Verse 10, so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And David went back home. How long is it going to take for David to work through his stuff with God and come back to the place where he says, we're going to figure this thing out. We're going to work this thing out. But we're going to have the presence of the Lord at the center of our community. How long do you think it took? The scripture said after three months. Not 40 years, not 60 years, not 20 years. After three months, somebody came to him and said, remember that guy Obed-Edom? You remember we put the ark of God there? They said, yeah. How many of his, how many of his sons have died? None of them have died. How much stuff in his life has fallen apart? Nothing's fallen apart. How many people did, did that ark kill? And nobody died. His house is blessed because of the ark of God. 
What are you talking about blessed? Let me tell you what I mean by blessed. His wife was sick, but she's healed. His sons were rebellious, but now they're walking right. His business was falling apart, but now it's prospering. His kid couldn't figure out how to do stuff in school, but now he's getting straight A's. Let me tell you what's happening with this guy, Obed-Edom. Because he knows how to treat the presence of God, God's presence is working blessing in his life. His fields are producing an abundant harvest. His vats are bursting with new wine. He knows how to handle the presence of God and something began to stir in David's heart again and he said let's go get it right now Amen. three months and isn't it interesting that we're going to spend three months talking about spirituality because yeah. I want to see if you can get it right in as little time as David got it right yeah. I want to see I don't want you to be saying 60 years from now you know what now I think I want that walk with God mm-hmm. listen you need to say it today But I'm hurting. Get over that stuff. Take that. And it's not that God doesn't care. It's that he does care. But you got to take your cares to the Lord. Take your pain to him. You feel rejected. Take it to him. You want to feel acceptance. There's nothing like the presence of the Lord. Here was this problem. Here's why David moved so quickly. Because he had created this space for God. On the hill where he lived in this city called Jerusalem, he had his palace. And he said, I want to create a space for God. And so he built a tent. And they called it the Tabernacle of David. It's there, right outside his palace, but it's empty. He had created this space for God, but God wasn't in it yet. He had created this space where we come and pray. But right now we're praying and God's not meeting with us. He had to go back to this empty space. And every day, that empty space mocked him. Every day, that space in his life said, you better figure out how to fill this with God. The space was still there. He didn't tear down the space. What we tend to do is that when we're hurt by God, we tear down the space. Well, I'm not going to pray no more. I'm not going to church anymore. I'm going to take three months off. Why? Because I'm hurting. You need to create that space and leave it there. I'm talking about going back to that space every day, even if you feel nothing. Go back to that space and open your Bible, even if you don't understand a word of it. Talk to God, even if he doesn't say anything back. I'm talking about creating a space and saying, this space is here. It belongs to the Lord. And when he determines to come fill it, he will. But in the meantime, I'm going to come to this space every day and wait. At the church I grew up at, we called it praying our hour. There was this thing at my church when I was growing up. Every member of the church, it was mandatory. Every member of the church had to spend one hour a day in prayer. And not just at home. You had to come to the church. And there was a chapel for prayer. And there was a book at the front of that chapel. And you had to write in your name and the time you checked in. And the time you left. And the administrator went through that book every week. And if your name wasn't on there, you got a call. You haven't prayed your hour. Not an hour a week, an hour a day. Seven days a week. I see you missed Thursday, Saturday, and you missed the next Tuesday. You got three hours to make up. You got to pay God back. (laughs) With interest. That's three hours and 40 minutes. You got to pay dividends. At the time, I felt like that was so 
religious. At the time, I felt like that was so controlling. Even felt a little cult-like. And matter of fact, if I were to institute that at this church here, it'd be a quick way to empty this place out (laughs) in about three weeks flat. All ten of us would be gathered here three Sundays later. We wouldn't need the sound system anymore. Can you hear me back there? Two rows. Yeah, we hear you, Pastor. We're right here. But two days ago, on Friday, spent the day with my daughter. All of a sudden, I just felt like I wanted to go back to the church I grew up at. So I took her over there. Patton. I said, baby, this is where daddy went to school. She said, oh, wow. She said, are there flowers there? I said, yeah, baby, there's flowers there. There's beautiful flowers. And she loves flowers. It's one of the things we do. We take walks and we look for flowers. She goes, wow, daddy, look at that flower. Look at that flower. So I took her, showed her the flowers. Wow, those are pretty flowers. I took her up the street and showed her the house where I grew up. I said, baby, see this house? Daddy lived there when he was your age with Nene and Papa, my mom and dad, and with Uncle Joshi and Uncle Charles. She said, you lived here, Daddy? I said, I sure did. And she had this concerned look on her face. (laughs) Because that place is a dump now. But believe me, it wasn't that bad back then. And it's real close to the school. She said, Daddy, did you walk to school? I said, yeah, it's right up the hill. I walked there every day. I took her back over to the church. I said, this is the church Daddy went to. She said, this is our church? I said, no, our church is in Emeryville. This is the church Daddy grew up at. Then I took her into the prayer chapel. I said, this is where Daddy used to pray every day. I had to. (laughs) (laughs) The book's still there, too. They don't call people anymore. Now it's just there as a courtesy. I took her to my spot. So whenever I prayed there, every day I prayed in this spot. I said, baby, right here. This is where daddy prayed every day. I said, will you pray with daddy? She said, can we get ice cream afterwards? I said, sure. She said, and then can you chase me and tickle me? I said, sure. We got on our knees. She clasped her hands. And I began to pray. And as I began to pray, I was taken back to my childhood. And I saw myself there with my father. And I began to hear his voice. And all of a sudden, I was overwhelmed with gratitude. I wanted to just call my mother and father and say, thank you for teaching me how to pray. As I was there, I remembered my grandmother taking me there every day, one particular summer. Pray my hour. She said, you're going to pray until you get filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to pray until you get the Holy Ghost. And I prayed every day. And you know what's funny? I was 12 years old that summer. And I was so ashamed. Because I would pray. And I would be daydreaming within five minutes. Oh, Lord. I tried to pray fervently. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. 
And my mind would just wander off. And about 15, 20 minutes later, I'd wake up, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. Lord, I, I repent. I repent, oh, Lord. I seek you, oh, God. I'm here, oh, Lord. I, Lord, I see. And I would have like a three-minute attention span when it came to prayer. And then about 15, 20 minutes of daydreaming. And I just felt so ashamed. So inadequate. I felt like, man, I can't even do this right. But my grandmother said, you're going to come back here every day. Every day. I don't care what you experience or what you feel. You're going to come back every day. You know what she was teaching me? She was teaching me that you don't learn how to have an intimate walk with God overnight. See, some people pray for 15 minutes and then give up. See, this doesn't work. That's like going to the gym and you're 350 pounds and you work out for five minutes and go, I'm still 300 pounds. This don't work. I'm out of here. If you work out for a week, you might be 299. You might have lost one pound. You should rejoice. That's awesome. I do that 52 times in a year. I lost 52 pounds. Two years, I lost 104 pounds. I'm going somewhere. I'm committed to this. Listen, developing a closer walk with God, it's about walking with Him daily. It takes time to build any relationship. But carving out the time and committing to it. You know what the Lord kept reminding me of on Thursday when I was there? He kept reminding me of so many times when I prayed and I sought his face, but I didn't feel anything. And suddenly I look back on those times and I just feel the love of God. I feel like God was saying, but I'm proud of you for that. You know, the Lord reminded me of this time when I was 17 years old. I had just graduated high school. I was getting ready to go to college. And my parents had to go out of town for a weekend, but I had to stay behind because I needed to work that weekend. And I took my parents and my two brothers to the airport, dropped them off, and I couldn't wait to get home. I was going to have the house to myself for a whole weekend. Party, right? When I got back to the house, I opened the door, I closed it behind me, and I fell on my knees and said, God, I worship you. You know what I was looking forward to? Having the whole house to myself so I could pray and worship loudly without disrupting anyone. And I worshiped God and I sought his face just there on my knees. And you know what? I didn't feel anything. I didn't sense anything. And at that moment, I was even a little disappointed because I thought God was going to come and meet me in power and in fire. You know how some people, all they tell you about their prayer life is, I prayed five minutes and the heavens opened and the fire burned and the oil flowed and the wind blew. And then I heard 16 angels singing in 16-part in harmony. And I saw an apocalyptic vision of the end times. He said, man, I prayed and I didn't see none of that. I must be so unspiritual. Sometimes it's those moments where you feel like nothing happened. That's when something is happening. And God reminded me of that moment. And he said, do you remember that? I said, yes, Lord, I remember that. And the Lord said, I'll never forget that moment. You pleased me that day. You wanted to be with me, and that pleased me. And I just began to weep. My daughter's there, and I'm just weeping, and I'm weeping. And she said, Daddy, why are you crying? I said, because I'm so happy. And I tried to explain. God showed me that he's known me. And that he's walked with me for 36 years. And that I've known him. 
and that I've walked with him. And then she interrupts me, okay, can we go play now? <laughs> that was Friday. Friday night, I prayed Alethea to sleep. She was clutching my arms. I just knelt down beside her and prayed her to sleep. I felt so spiritual. <laughs> Until Saturday morning when my wife and baby and I were driving here for a meeting. And I lost my temper and I started shouting at my wife. I felt so carnal. I just lost it. I got out of the car and just stormed off. Walked up into the Oakland Hills. And then my back started hurting, so I sat down and called my dad. <laughs> you got to be careful how far you walk when you're mad, because you got to walk back. <laughs> my dad came and got me. You know where he took me? To that prayer chapel, where I'd just been with my daughter the day before. He spent two hours praying with me. And we cried together. We prayed together. And then he said, now go call your wife and humble yourself <laughs> and tell her you're sorry and make it right. right. Me and Sonny went to see Pastor Daniels last night. We're okay now. <laughs> I repented. Isn't it funny that sometimes you start seeking the face of God and praying and you think you got it all together? And then all of a sudden you do it all wrong. You mess up in some big way. You know what I was thinking when I was walking up in the Oakland Hills? Where the heck did that come from? I mean, I just spent the last two days in deep prayer. Like, I've gone to places that I have... I mean, I went further in the Lord in the last two days than I have in years... How the heck am I going to lose my temperance and holler at my wife the next morning? Where in the world did that come from? You know what you do? Take responsibility for your actions. You say, I'm sorry. But you get up and you move on. Because at the point where you mess up, that's when the devil comes and says, See, you don't even know the Lord. It's not even real. You're heck of fake. You're not even really a Christian. You're supposed to be a man of God. You call yourself a pastor. Yelling at your wife. Now everybody's going to know how fake you are. She's going to go put it on Facebook. Good thing she's not preaching tomorrow. Because she tells it all when she preaches. She doesn't hide nothing. How many times have I had to just cover my face when my wife's preaching? The other day, my husband wanted such and such from me. You know what he wanted. And I said, what do you think I am? He's like, you're going to tell that? <laughs> One time she said, my husband was on the toilet. The other day, I'm like, oh, Lord. <laughs> but you know what? We got to keep it real, folks. I mean, we got to talk about the real stuff because nobody is perfect up in here. I mean, we all got stuff in our lives. What I'm saying to you is don't let the discouragement over the stuff in your life get you to shut down that tabernacle. 
David knew he had messed up and he knew the ark of God was over there in Obed-Edom's house and he knew that he was mad at God and afraid of God at the same time. But he wasn't willing to tear down the space that he had made for God. He knew in his heart, pretty soon I'm going to fill this with God. I've made this space and I'm not going to tear it down. You've got to learn how to make space in your life and say, I'm not going to tear it down. I'm going to make this space for God. I'm going to spend this time with God and I'm not going to stop. And I don't care if I'm disappointed there or discouraged there. I'm coming back tomorrow. And David said, we're going back to Obed-Edom's house. But first, somebody go get me that instruction manual. <laughs> we got to figure out how to do this right. And he did a little studying in the Word of God. How many know that if you want to learn how to live in the presence of God, you need to get in the Word of God and find out how? And this is what David said. This is in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 11. I want you to see this. 1 Chronicles 15, 11. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Yoel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. Verse 12. He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Listen to this. Sanctify yourselves. Get yourselves clean. Sanctify yourselves. It means to set yourselves apart. You and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. See that? I've already prepared the place for it. But now we're going to fill that space with the presence of God. Verse 13. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. We did not consult him about the proper order. God says, if you're going to come before me, there's going to be order. If you're going to meet with me, there's going to be order. And you need to consult me about the proper order. God, how do we do this? David said, I'll tell you how we do it. This is what God said. The ark of God is not to be pulled by oxen. Always looking for something else or somebody else to pull my weight for me. I hope my pastor's praying for me. I hope you're praying for you. Now, I'm a young man, but I've been pastor of this church for nine years. This is my 10th year. And what I learned a long time ago is that there's some sheep that will put you on a 40-day fast and then go to a pizza party. They'll have you crying out to the Lord. And then they'll head to the club. And what I learned is that I'm not supposed to pray for you as in instead of you. I'm supposed to pray with you. If you're praying, let me know what time the prayer meeting is. I'll join you. But if you ain't praying for you, don't expect me to be weeping a tear for you. Any more than a personal trainer can go to the gym and work out for you. The presence of God will not be pulled in on a cart for you. 
And so many folks come to church expecting the pastor to just pull in the, the presence of God. And the worship team needs to just pull it in on a cart for you. And pull it in, and the pre- somebody else is going to pull it in for you. David said, I've consulted the Lord. And he said, no, the Ark of the Covenant is not pulled on a cart. It's carried on shoulders. And until there's a gathering of people that's willing to carry the weight of the glory of the Lord, it ain't going nowhere. So sanctify yourselves so you can carry it. Get yourselves ready. We, I just consulted God about the proper order, and we're going to do this right. And when they had sanctified themselves, David took all the Levites, and they went down to the house of Obed-Edom, and they said, now we're ready to do this. They had the poles with them, and they put the ark on the poles, and the priests and Levites picked it up, and they took seven steps. They said, one, two, three, four, five, six, and David said, stop. Every seventh step, David said, it's time for sacrifices and offerings. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord every seventh step. David said, we're going to have to learn how to walk in the Spirit. And if I don't know how to walk in the Spirit, I'm going to plan a prayer meeting every seven steps of my life. Listen, I'm telling you, you're going to have to learn how to pray every seventh step. You say, I'm in the flesh every 15 minutes. Well, then, then plan a prayer meeting every 14 minutes. David had a worship service set up every seven steps. Stop. And do you know how many, how long it probably took them to get all the way up to the hill? Stop. Set up the altar right here. Let's make the sacrifice now. Offer it to the Lord. Now worship, Lord, we worship. And they worshiped every seven steps. And then they come up the hill of the Lord. You read Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? He whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. This is the generation of those who seek your face, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then it says this, lift up your head, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory will come in. Do you know that as the priests were ascending the hill to Jerusalem, and they could see the gates of Jerusalem ahead of them, the priests began to cry out, lift up your head, O you gates, and be lifted up you everlasting doors and the king of glory will come in and the gatekeepers open the gates and they open the gates of righteousness he said open up for me the gates of righteousness that I may enter in and the and the God of Israel came in with the ark of the covenant and David worshiped and he danced before the Lord now you can get your dance on now the bass player can play now the drummer can play now the keyboard player can play now the singers can sing because we brought everything into proper order and David took the Ark of the Covenant and set it in that space and then he created a 24 hour rotation of worship and prayer he said we're going to fill this space with our worship and God is going to fill it with his presence Let me ask you a question. If the presence of God came to you in power and in glory, and if he came to reveal to you all of the secrets of his heart, would you have any place to put him? Do you have a space in your life that you've carved out? Don't get me wrong. We're going to talk about bursting out of the barriers of that space next week. Because God doesn't want to be locked in a box. 
But you start by creating a space for him and learn to dwell with him in that space. Learn to have that consistent time with God every day. Learn to meet with him on a daily basis and then let him explode the boundaries. Let him expand that space. Let him enlarge the place of your tent. Let him stretch out the the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare. Let him lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. He will enlarge you, but you've got to start with the space. My church, where I was growing up, we used to sing this song. Sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Savior's throne make all my cares and sorrows known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare. In thy return, sweet hour of prayer. You know, yesterday when I was praying with my dad, I was feeling great distress because of what I had said to my wife. Come on, on, Gabe. I was feeling great sorrow and great anxiety. When I went back to that place where I prayed and I thought it was religious, that place where I learned how to seek the face of God, See, there's always somebody to say, oh, that's religious. Don't be legalistic. Mm-hmm. You have a time every day where you spend time with God. Don't be, reli- don't be religious. Don't be legalistic. We're so afraid of legalism that we're lawless. Oh. <laughs> so afraid of religion that we're libertarian. Mm-hmm. No structure in our lives. I went to that place yesterday and I got on my knees and I thank God that I was taught how to pray. That when I'm feeling distress and grief and when I'm feeling pain, I know where to go with it. And I started singing this song. And as I sang this song to the Lord, his presence came and his comfort came and his word came and his glory came. And I felt like he was in it with me. And all of a sudden I began to weep and it wasn't just tears of pain, but tears of joy. And I began to worship the Lord and say, Lord, I love you. And Lord, I adore you. Lord, I praise you. And I felt him just washing over my life. And you know what I felt? I felt in my heart this pain for people who don't have that place. I said, God, people who don't know how to come to this place when they're in pain, where do they go with it? When people feel anxiety and fear and they don't know how to come to you with it, where do they go? I can't make it if I don't come to you with this. I began to cry out to God. I said, oh God, would you once again teach us how to pray? The disciples said to Jesus one day, they said, teach us to pray. Notice they didn't say teach us how to pray. They said, teach us to do it. Teach us to pray. Teach us to do it. We run from it. Teach us to run to it. We avoid it. Teach us to cling to it. We neglect it. Teach us to crave it. Teach us to desire it. Teach us to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, i got to come before your face. Sweet hour of prayer. I used to sing that song when I was a kid at church. And it felt like an old people's song. It felt ancient. Now I sing it. 
And it reminds me that he's the God of my fathers. It reminds me that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It reminds me he's the God of Elizabeth Robinson and Peter Robinson. It reminds me he's the God of Williette Means and Diane Robinson. It reminds me of the lineage of faith that I have. It takes me back to the fact that my relationship with God didn't start 45 minutes ago, but he's walked with me. There's a history to it. I sang that song in the prayer chapel yesterday in the presence of God, and I said, I thank you that you've taught me how to pray. Amen. On Friday, I was there with my daughter, and she heard my voice praying. On Saturday, I was there with my father, and I heard his voice praying. And I was able to see the lineage that through the years, we've learned how to serve the Lord, and we've made many mistakes. But the one thing that kept us on track... The one thing that pulled us back, even if we were moving in the wrong direction, the one thing that we had was that we knew how to pray. Amen. And I haven't always been faithful to that hour of prayer. I've made many mistakes and many errors in many places, but when I came back to that place, it was like reconnecting with an old friend. And it was as if no time has passed. Amen. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Benjamin, I've known you. And I've caused you to know me. Maybe you don't have that lineage. Maybe you don't have generations that have gone on before you that have created that example. Maybe you don't have a memory of your father praying for you when you were two years old. But let me tell you something. You can create that for your children. You can create it for the generations to come. You can create it. You can start today. You can make a decision today. I'm going to pray and seek the face of God. I'm going to learn how to walk with Him. I'm going to learn how to seek Him early and how to seek Him late. I'm going to learn how to fill that space with the presence of God. Hallelujah. Sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Savior's throne. Make all my cares and sorrows known in seasons of distress and grief. My soul has often found relief and all. Escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Father, we love you today. We turn our hearts to you again. We ask you. To put a burden in our hearts. 
to seek you early. To seek you late. To be able to say as David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. And that will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Thank you for loving us and for walking with us so patiently. You are faithful. We give you all of the praise and glory in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's in his precious name that we pray these things. Amen.